Okay, moving right around, right along with the uh, uh, clinical challenges. Um, just to let you know, the next session we're going to have two speakers again, Derek and then Bethany. And then afterwards, if you guys would um, go out, grab your lunch. It is a buffet lunch. Bring it back in, and Dr. Shama is going to speak to us during lunch. So afterwards, if you can just get through the line as soon as possible, get settled so that he can start his lecture. Okay. Next we have Derek Peltier. He graduated from UT Southwestern with his Master's in Physician Assistant Studies. Um, he did complete a one-year fellowship in dermatology at the UT Southwestern Medical School. The past four years he's worked in a private practice setting in Dallas and he's been twice published in the Journal for Dermatology uh, of Dermatology for Physician Assistants and has lectured both for STPA and the Texas Academy of PAs. Please welcome Derek. How are you guys doing? Like uh, Christine said, my name is Derek. I've been doing dermatology for the past five years and love it. Uh, as you can tell, I'm a little bit rebellious. I changed the name of my talk from Challenging Cases of Dermatology to uh, The Zebras of Dermatology because I found this nice graphic of the zebra and I thought I have to work somehow work my talk around this. Now, you guys have all probably heard that axiom when you hear hoof prints, think horses, not zebras. And that is so true. Uh, however, it is a good idea to kind of know what some of those zebras are out there so that when you see one, you can recognize it. One of my favorite quotes is, what the mind does not know, the eyes cannot see. And I like that quote because you know, if you haven't read about lycoplanopilaris and you see a scarring alopecia on the scalp and, you, and you've never read about it or don't know about it, you're not going to know to put that in the differential uh, of things to look for. So it's important to be real uh, well-versed and, and to read a lot of things, at least know what they are. You don't have to know how to treat everything because we can always look those things up. But if you can actually recognize it in the skin, then that's easier just to go and look it up. So, as I mentioned, uh, whenever we're real busy and we've got a herd of patients coming through our offices, which happens you know, fairly often, and we hear tons and tons of hoof prints, and most of the time, yes, you're going to hear those horses, but occasionally, like I said, you'll, there might be a zebra if you keep your eye open looking in the pack. Uh, just a, a small example of this. Yesterday, when I was, yesterday afternoon, I knew I had to catch a plane. I was kind of busy, and they had double booked me and squeezed all the patients in because I had cut my clinic a little bit short to make my plane. And so I was real stressed out to try to make the plane, and I was trying to see patients a little bit more of a hurry than I like to. And I had a lady come in, and she had this rash on her legs the last six weeks, and it was round and scaly, and she had a gown on, and she kind of pulled the gown up and let me see her legs. And, you know, immediately I just kind of spat out, nonmillimeter dermatitis, this is what you have. And didn't even really give her much time to really get much history from her. I just kind of spouted that out, started going over what nonmillimeter eczema is, and what to avoid and how to you know, prevent it. And I thought, as I'm talking, I see that she's in a gown, so I might as well just kind of walk around behind her and just take a look at her back. And so I'm looking at her back as I'm talking and kind of really starting to not look as much like numular eczema. I see, but it's winter time, and I've been seeing that so many, so many times. And I see her chest, and I'm thinking, okay, this may not be numular dermatitis. Let me ask her a few questions. So I just mentioned, hey, have you had strep throat in the last couple of months? Well, come to think of it, Christmas, you know, I it was kind of going around my family, and yeah, I did have strep throat. Uh, and about two weeks later, this rash popped out. So I'm thinking, 
you know, silly me. This has got tate psoriasis. Now, it's not a zebra. I'd probably think this more maybe like a Clydesdale. It's not just a regular horse that you see. But nonetheless, you know, make sure that we really look at, look at the patient and just whenever you don't know, just look at the lesion itself and forget about everything else and just maybe in your mind describe to yourself in your head what that lesion is. And a lot of times you can, it'll make you, your differential change when you do that. So one thing I like about where I work, I work in close to Dallas. It's about 20 minutes to the east of Dallas. It's a city called Rockwall. And my clinic sits up top of this hill. And so it's so wonderful, especially on Tuesdays when I usually work till about 6, 6.30. When I come home, I drive across the bridge, and this is what I see. I see a nice little silhouette of Dallas in the background. And so when I've had a nice stressful day, this is always a very relaxing uh, way to come home and start the evening. So I'm brought to you today two cases that I saw this last year in dermatology that uh, this first one I'm going to talk about, I didn't even know what it was when I uh, saw it. I had to ask my, ask my, uh, my physician and he's the one that immediately knew what it was. But since I didn't know what it was, I figured that some of you guys may not know what it is either and so that we'll talk about it today. But uh, this lady, she was a 37-year-old white female and she comes in with this... 20-year history or more of this recurrent rash. It seems to pop up around when she has her menstrual cycle, and then it'll disappear, and it'll happen on a month-to-month basis. And it's very itchy, and she had never really seen anybody before, before, which is kind of surprising to me, since you know she putting up with this for 20 years. What was it that? tipped her off to want to finally come in to see me. Who knows, but she was there. And she had tried topical steroid creams, you know, everything that you can get over the counter, uh, hydrocortisone, used for an antifungals, and none of that really seemed to work too much. And so I, I asked her, you know, thinking, all right, this could be, you know, something that might be a horse, so let's ask about the common things. Is there a new medication that you started uh, or a medicine that you take on the month to month? There's no medicines, you know, really that we could blame. Nothing that in her diet that we could necessarily blame for it. Uh, I also asked her about, you know, do you use any certain perfumes or cosmetics or detergents? So we went over all that. And it couldn't really put a finger on exactly anything that could be causative on that end. So on exam, when I looked at her, uh, she had these urticarial-like wheels on her abdomen and on her thighs. So I was, you know, immediately was thinking, you know, this could be an urtic, you know, type of urticaria, but it just didn't present typical, like your typical urticaria. And so I went to the back uh, room because our walls are like paper thin, and I didn't want her to hear me calling up my physician, like, oh, you know, Dr. Warren, what in the world is, I got this going on? So I kind of go to the back and I call him, and he immediately says, well, I think that this is autoimmune progesterone dermatitis. Uh, autoimmune progesterone dermatitis is rare, otherwise I wouldn't be talking about it today. And obviously it's only in women. And then you will see this, you know, be cyclical in nature because it is mediated by, ge- by progesterone. Now, like with all rare conditions, there's not a lot of science or a lot of research that goes into figuring out what causes these things. So we have theories, and kind of the top of, top three theories that we have for this, and one was, would be that there's some kind of pre-sensitization with progesterone. Maybe uh, the the person has taken oral contraceptive, and then that has pre-sensitized her to react to her own progesterone later. However, that wasn't the case with my patient because she had never had taken oral birth control pills in the past. So the second one uh, theory is that there's an, the women are producing an altered form of progesterone and that their body is just responding to this altered form by creating this rash on her body. And then the final theory for this 
is that there's just the progesterone is causing a hypersensitivity reaction to some other allergen that's out there, and then when her progesterone rises once a month, that that's when her body presents with this rash due to that other allergen. So when you see this rash come up, it is typically going to be about seven to ten days prior to menses. Because that's when you get that peak of progesterone, and I'll show you a slide of that in just a minute. And then usually the rash will subside around uh, one to three days after a menstruation starts. I, I forgot to put that in my slide. It just says after menstruation. I don't want to confuse anybody, but it actually will stop after the uh, beginning of her menstrual cycle. And the age of onset can be variable. It can be during menarche, the very first period, or it can pop up when the woman's 48 years old close to uh, menopause. And obviously during pregnancy this can be worse because progesterone is all over the chart during that time. So if you all remember uh, in class a long time ago when you are doing your OBGYN uh, lectures, this is the, um, the chart that we see. The first phase of this, let's see if it has a laser pointer here. No. But anyway, the first part of that, that's the follicular phase, just a little review. And then you have ovulation there in the middle, and then the final part of that is called the luteal phase. And the luteal phase, this is when the progesterone tends to peak. So if we, if we were to draw a line in the luteal phase over here, and we back up from day 28 and go back 7 to 10 days, that's when you start to see the peak in that progesterone. And so, oh, perfect. Now that you gave this to me, I probably won't need it anymore. <laughs> anyway. The, uh, if you back up about seven to ten days, you'll see a peak in the progesterone, uh, and when this ha that's when the rash will occur, and then you'll see it kind of dip, dip, dip down at the very end of that. And that's when the uh, menses starts, and so that's when you see that the rash will fade at that time. So how does it present? Well, most commonly, like it did in my patient, it'll present as urticaria. You get these urticarial wheels just anywhere on the body. In the case of my patient, it was just on her thighs and her abdomen, and she got it in the same place every single time. It never, never changes. It's always the same kind of rash. And obviously, then itch would be the most common symptom because urticaria tends to itch a lot. You can also see a kind of a papulovesicular or an eczema type reaction. You can have mouth ulcers, angioedema can happen, you can get some uh, annular erythema. It can present in all kinds of ways, but again, urticaria is what you're going to most likely see. And so the clinical history, this is really where you're going to make your diagnosis uh, because you're going to find that this is a cyclical pattern. However, this can be difficult if the patient is having irregular uh, cycles, irregular menses. That can kind of throw, your, throw you off a little bit, so keep that in mind. One of the ways to diagnose it, you know, if you want it for the basic scientist and you want to really go after it and, and confirm this diagnosis is to do a skin uh, a progesterone challenge prick test. What you do is just get 0.1 to 0.2% of aqueous progesterone solution in intradermally within 30 minutes you'll see the reaction sometimes it can take up to 24 to 48 hours but it's usually a fairly quick response you can have them um, sit in the waiting room in their exam room and come back and check in about a half an hour all other tests that are done are going to be intramus intramuscular or oral prednisone test challenge tests can be done and then a biopsy is really not very helpful. If you biopsy, you may see something inconsistent with urticaria. You may see spongiotic dermatitis with, you know, um, uh, infiltrates around the perivascular area. So it's really not something you can diagnose per biopsy. So for mild disease, for the urticaria form, obviously antihistamines are good to use. One of my favorite antihistamines for urticaria in general is, is Zizol. I found that it's uh, non-sedating, taken in the morning, and very effective. Zizol is basically Zyrtec, but they took out the inactive isomer, so you don't have that inactive isomer trying to compete for the active ingredient, uh, and so I think that it works better than, than Zyrtec, but, and it's, I like the once-a-day dosing on it. So you can do that for more stubborn cases. You can throw in an, also an H2 blocker like Cimetidine and Zizol and block both H1 and H2. If it's, it's a, 
If it's an exhibitous form, then topical steroids are helpful. For really severe diseases, you can use oral uh, steroids or you can suppress the progesterone. In the case of my patient, I actually gave her some antihistamines and I referred her to an endocrinologist to address the hormonal stuff because I'm not used to writing medications like uh, uh, ethanol, estrogen, estradiol is one that you can use. You can use danazole. Danazole, when you use that, it's uh, 200 milligrams twice a day. Usually start about one to two days prior to when the patient expects the rash to occur and then you stop that about one to two days after she starts her cycle. So you kind of treat it uh, uh, um, cyclically. That's not the word I'm looking for, but you treat it um, monthly like that. You can also use tamoxifen, but again, that's not a drug that I am very used to using, so I just usually punt those to the endocrinologist to take care of that. And then you want to educate the patient to avoid any kind of progesterone type uh, contraceptives. The depot is really bad. The uh, intrauterine devices, not the copper ones, but the one that release the hormones or progesterone, that would be tough because, I mean, those things are stuck in there and it's not the easiest thing to remove and could cause them some problems. And then for just really recalcitrant cases, you can, you know, bilateral oophorectomy would be the, the treatment of choice for that in just severe, severe uh, instances. So my second case was a 48-year-old man, and he came in, he had about a six to eight month history of this really itchiness on his forearms, and uh, he couldn't really explain it. He said he really never got a rash with it, so that was kind of weird, just really itchy. And like I did with the first patient, I always go through, is there any lotion or is there something that you're doing that can maybe uh, cause your rash? And I usually would just tell the patient, uh, that's the line of my questioning is going at, is there something you think that could possibly, you're coming in contact with that could cause this? And no, uh, that wasn't the case. We couldn't find anything. And really there was no evidence in the skin that this was some kind of contact uh, dermatitis. But it was you know, related to just here on the forearm. So I was thinking there might be some kind of photo uh, exacerbatory uh, deal going on here. He did not eat any cervical spine disease and on, on exam his skin looked uh, normal. So here's a picture of his skin. Uh, it was relatively without any kind of uh, any rash or eczema-like eruption. There was a few like, little excoriated papules but really nothing to get you too excited about. So the diagnosis here is brachioradioporitis. And this is, a, again, another rare skin condition. And I find that it usually affects men. I've only seen it in men, but I'm sure it can affect women uh, equally. But it's usually going to be in the, the arm right here on, the, on this part of the arm. And usually the patients are going to come in with itch. It's probably the most common symptom, but they can also complain of a burn or irritation in the skin. Now, skin signs that you will see is if someone's scratching a lot, and you can scratch so hard that you can cause purpura and bruising. You know, I've seen that in other skin conditions like eczema um, and uh, lichen planus. Uh, but if they scratch so hard, you might see some purpura there. You also might see, if it's been going on a, long, a really long time, you can see lichenification if this guy's really going at his arms with parigo nodules. And excoriations, I did see a couple excoriations from him. And then if, uh, you can see evidence from, you know, if it's been on years where he might have scarred himself from scratching too hard or there's some uh, hyperpigmentation there. And typically this is going to be your 40 to 60 year old patient. So some of the possible causes of this is whatever, if, not all patients, but most patients, if you do a cervical radiograph on them, you can find some cervical disc disease and it, and it usually correlate we're in the cervical spine to the part of the arm that's affected. So there is a, a theory 
that this there may be something to that. But probably not acting alone. We do think that there's a big responsibility of sun in that because it's only in a sun-distributed area, usually on the outer aspects of the forearms. And then when you take biopsies on the skin, you're going to see sun damage. You see solar elastosis, and you see a lot of uh, sun changes in the skin. So it's probably a combination of the two. Uh, there might be another factor in there, too, that also is causing it. But we just don't completely understand the cause of it. So good treatments for this, like I said, since sun is probably a factor and they should probably be putting sunscreen on there anyway just to prevent skin cancer, it's a good idea to just make sunscreen a part of their daily activity. Uh, I like to use one that's a spray-on. I know Bullfrog makes a spray-on, Neutrogena makes a spray-on because with guys, you gotta make it easy. We hate putting lotions on our arms and creams on our arms and if you can just say, look, you spray it on like off, you can get them to put it on there um, and I find that that works really well. It also works, the sprays work really good for you know, guys that have hairy arms, it goes on real nice and, and smooth. So you may, you may try something over the counter like Sarna, one of those creams with a menthol phenol. That's usually somewhere you can start. And if that doesn't work, you can add capsaicin in there. Uh, capsaicin, just to warn the patient that it can burn really bad when you first put it on there. Make sure you wash it off your hands because you don't want to you know, rub it into your eyes and then for four hours your eyes are killing you. But the way capsaicin works is basically it will deplete the nerve endings of the substance P that's transmitting uh, the symptom of itch. You can also use local anesthetic creams. I'm not real crazy about this because I, you know, I like, like lidoc using topical lidocaine. I don't like that idea that much because I just worry about. It. You hear stories of someone putting, you know, lidocaine on for some kind of procedure, uh, you know, in a large area, and then they get lidocaine toxicity because they absorb too much because it can affect, you know, the. The, them cardio, cardiology wise. So I probably would steer away from that. You can do the lidocaine patches like some of you are probably familiar with with uh, Zoster or you leave them on 12 hours and 12 hours off you know, if, if you had to. But I probably like myself steer away from that. Amitriptyline is very nice. I also use this in my uh, uh, herpes zoster patients. I give them amitriptyline 25 milligrams at night and this can really help with the uh, nerve type sensations and pain. And then gabapentin can also be used. You can use amitriptyline at night and then give them gabapentin in the day and just kind of titrate up. Start with the lowest dose because again, you know, you're limited to because that can make them drowsy at work. And if, you know, if they're a truck driver or they're operating heavy machinery, you don't want them um, being too sedated. So start, start low and then titrate up from there. So this is my little boy. I think last year when I did this talk, I showed you the sonogram of him. So this is the end product of my son right here, Isaac. So our next speaker is Bethany Grubb, our president. She's a graduate of Baylor University in 1999 and the physician assistant uh, program in UT Southwestern Medical Center in 2002. She completed her master's degree at the University of Nebraska in a fellowship program in dermatology at UT Southwestern, the only dermatology program in the United States. She works in a busy practice, private practice in dermatology and in the pigmented lesion uh, clinic at UT Southwestern. She's a member of the American Academy of Physician Assistants and has served a two-year term as director at large for the Society of Dermatology PAs, now serving as its president. Bethany Grubb enjoys giving lectures at physician assistant students and she is leading a team that is writing a web-based educational curriculum for dermatology and physician assistants. Let's all welcome Bethany Grubb. 
Um, I'm going to actually do my talk, and then we're going to have um, some time for questions and answers um, at the end. So you guys um, hang on until we uh, dismiss you for lunch. So these are my cases. I've got three um, to tell you about. And my first patient was a lady that came in in December of 06. Her chief complaint was spot on my right leg and a rash on my head. And it was a 42-year-old African-American female, key, don't forget that. She came to our office and she had a spot on, yes. Do you want this up higher, would that help? Or just stand here? Okay, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna stand. Um, okay, I'll start. 42-year-old African-American female, she presented to our office, she had a spot on her right thigh that had been changing and the scalp, or the rash on her scalp had been getting worse. She was told she had psoriasis and she had been using some over-the-counter medications that were not helping. So, in her past medical history, and I could tell that she knew exactly what she was talking about, she had actually had a melanoma. Um, and in her sheet that she had filled out as she came in as a new patient, it said melanoma animal type. And so, I'm looking at this patient who's coming in for the first time going, oh my gosh, I don't know if I know exactly what this is. It had been excised in January of 2002, and she had had a sentinel lymph node that was negative. Um, so again, it's sometimes hard to present these cases when you don't have all of her. Um, I actually eventually did get her records from her previous dermatologist, which we are going to talk about. I did not have that um, when I saw this patient for the first time. So you're sort of sitting there going, okay, I'm going to treat this patient as if this is a melanoma, not fully knowing exactly what an animal type melanoma was. So that was a new entity for me. Um, so she had a past medical history of the melanoma. She also had high blood pressure, um, past surgical history. Interestingly enough, in this um, African-American patient, she had also had a basal cell carcinoma, which had been excised with Mohs. And she'd had gastric bypass in December of 05. So this, when we actually did get her records, and I got it in between her first visit and then when she came to follow up with us, um, this was the report. And so it originally, um, when it first came back, the original biopsy came back as an atypical spindled nevomelanocytic tumor. Um, and you can read here basically what the pathologist said, that it appears to have been completely excised. The differential diagnosis is between that of a peculiar blue nevus versus that of a so-called animal type melanoma. Um, and they made the decision that this was unusual enough that they wanted to send it out to an outside expert, which they in fact did. And this was the addendum report that came from her original dermatologist. Um, so again, they actually sent it off to Dr. Um, Mims, who's the senior dermatopathologist at MASH General. And um, his conclusion after looking at it was this, that it actually looked like something called a pigment synthesizing melanocytic tumor. That's what he called it. Um, and again, he went on to say that this is also known as an animal type melanoma or atypical melanocytic tumor. And it's part of the reason why this entity is confusing is that it falls under several different names, and we're actually going to take a look at that. So from his experience of the ones that he had seen, he did recommend doing a wider excision um, with one centimeter margins, as well as going ahead and doing a sentinel lymph node. 
So his report follows. This was actually his formal report that was also included in her chart. And he called it a pigment synthesizing melanocytic tumor. And we'll find out a little bit later that this is one of the terms that people um, use to describe this entity. Um, so he actually gives a long description. Part of it is just from his experience, which is nice because of the, the journals that I found, it's very difficult to find any consensus on this, and it's because they're so rare. Um, he basically talks about how he has experienced. He has seen 20 other cases um, that were similar to this. He does favor that term, the pigment synthesizing melanocytic tumor. Um, and he does recommend going forward and doing a sentinel lymph node biopsy, um, which is what he says here. And you can see, again, he recommends the margins. Um, and he does talk specifically about the patients that he has seen, how he does favor the fact that typically these follow an indolent core but then he does actually include in his report here that with two other dermatopathologists, he actually did see a young gentleman get this diagnosis who then died two years later. Um, so that was helpful actually as I went through um, and looked this entity up. He obviously had experience, so it was nice to kind of read his thoughts on it. So moving along, that was her past medical history. She did have a family history of diabetes. She had no history of skin cancer in her family. She was on a multivitamin. She was allergic to Levaquin. So when she came in for her first visit, this is what I um, saw on her. On her right thigh, she did have a 5-millimeter hyperpigmented irregular macule. Um, her scalp had some greasy scale throughout. She had a few salmon-colored plaques. Right upper shoulder, she did have that large scar from the surgery um, to remove the animal type melanoma. Um, I did went ahead and did a full uh, skin exam on her. Did not see any other lesions that were concerning, and she had no um, lymphadenopathy. So went ahead and did the shave biopsy um, just to check that spot with basically, it didn't look terrible, but obviously with her history, um, wanting to be careful. So this was my differential nevus versus dysplastic nevus versus melanoma in situ. So again, this was my plan. Um, she had had the past medical history that, in this case, um, knowing what I knew, I just was treating her as if it had been a melanoma, which was five years out, so that was good. Um, but we did do the full skin exam. I did discuss with her the ABCDs. Um, she was advised on monthly self-exams. Um, I did get her records from her previous dermatologist, which did come. Um, and the other key thing um, is my next point, which I actually called um, the dermatopathologist in our area that we use and spoke with him. His name is Dr. Sousa. And he did confirm that it is an unusual type of melanoma and it does tend to behave like a true melanoma. That was, again, from, from his experience. So I do encourage you guys, um, if there's a question that comes up, and we actually have a very open relationship with the group that we send our pathology to, which is nice, because many times they will call us saying, hey, this was your differential, but we didn't see anything that looked close to that. Can you help us um, tell us clinically, is it possible? Could it be this? Um, and so it's really nice to have that conversation, because what's difficult is that they are not seeing the patient. And so sometimes they don't really see what you're looking for unless you help lead them in the right direction. And so it was nice to, that I could just call him up and say, hey, what do you think about this? Help me kind of understand this more fully from your experience. Um, 
and this really is a pathologist diagnosis. Um, and again, she was directed to call us with any new or changing lesions. So we did the shave biopsy. Um, I made the diagnosis of seborrheic dermatitis. So I, from my experience and what I've seen, I would not have called her psoriasis. So I went ahead and treated her for seborrheic dermatitis of the scalp, gave her the Lipoproc shampoo, um, and had her use Dermasmooth oil once a day. And this was the pathology report. So it did come back. Um, our, again, our pathology group does not... Um, grade the dysplastic device, so he will not say mild, atypia, moderate, or severe, um, but he did call it a junctional nevus with dysplastic features, um, but recommended no further treatment at this point. Um, so it was benign, and then we recommended to see her back um, in a year. So think outside the box. I mean, this is obviously interesting, this woman coming in for the very first time, African-American with a history of melanoma and basal cells, unusual in and of itself. Um, but we weren't done yet. This is actually the information that I found as I looked through and did some research on animal type melanoma. It is described as a rare, heavily pigmented melanocytic tumor with indolent, although sometimes aggressive behavior. So again, that's obviously difficult to it, you just, it just sort of can't be put in you know, one box, essentially. It's a difficult entity to kind of get your head around. So it was first described in 18, 1832, literally in gray horses, which is where it gets its name. Um, few cases of fatalities have been reported, even with patients who have local regional mets. Um, there have been two cases of hepatic metastases that have been reported, and those patients at that time when this was written had not had a fatal course. So there is some controversy on the most appropriate name to give it, and so when any time you see any of these descriptions, essentially people are talking about the same thing, and as many entities in dermatology, sometimes it's difficult to just sort of come up with one name. Um, so one journal that I found was an American Journal of Surgical Pathology, and this was in January of 2004, and they recommended calling it a pigmented epithelioid melanocytoma. Again, sort of similar, same description, a borderline melanocytic lesion to include animal type melanoma and this unusual form of a blue nevus. And I went ahead and just listed out just to kind of give you guys a, a bigger picture. This was the largest consensus that I found um, of any of the articles on this many patients. And so they did look at 41 of these lesions in 40 patients. And again, they saw no gender predilection. It was all ethnic backgrounds. The median age was 27, which is obviously young. Um, the extremities were the most common site. They did see ulceration in seven of the cases. Regional nodes were sampled in 24 cases, so 59% of these patients, and in 11 cases, that lymph node actually contained MET. So 46% of the patients um, did, in fact, have regional METs, um, and liver METs in one case, and none of the patients had died um, within 32 months. So again, that was the best, um, kind of the largest study that I found assessing um, this entity. 
Pigment synthesizing melanoma was actually a similar name as to what Dr. Mim had called it, um, and it is a distinctive possible low-grade variant of melanoma, usually lacking the histologic features predictive of aggressive behavior seen in ordinary melanoma. So there is a consensus on, on the behavior. It's just kind of a, it's so unusual, it's difficult to make um, any different statements than that. So the bottom line is you can be safe assuming and treating it as if it is a real, true melanoma. Um, this one statement I thought was interesting, this actually had just come out in archives in January of 2009, um, and it basically was a study done on this family of enzymes where it revealed that there was reduced expression um, in these animal type melanomas. So they're thinking that that might be one reason why it has a less aggressive course. It was just interesting to me that this had just come out at the beginning of this year, so there's obviously further studies that are being done. So this um, patient actually came back and um, we again, this was basically kind of my treatment plan for her on this day when she came back. Um, we did a full skin exam regarding the melanoma. She did have a new lesion on her left thigh that we went ahead and decided to biopsy and that actually came back as a lentigo. The seborrheic dermatitis now was on her face as well, so we added Dezoin and then she had a little folliculitis of her back. And we planned to see her back in two months. But she came back in eight. Um, and it's just interesting because sort of right when I thought that we had kind of figured it out and we knew what we were dealing with with this lady, she came in with a totally different um, chief complaint and it was this spot that had come up on her nose. And BTW was just, she gave me this sort of huge history as kind of an oh by the way, I haven't told you, but my daughter is 15, has discoid lupus and SLE, she had both. Her son had polymyositis, her husband was positive ANA, and hers was actually negative. And here she is showing up with these new lesions, one on her nose and one on her ear. So my first thought of course was, <laughs> Oh my gosh, this, this African-American woman has discoid lupus after we've treated you know, all these different things. But it actually did come back. We did, in fact, go ahead and do a biopsy. It came back as seborrheic dermatitis, which was good news for her. Um, but the message with her that I kept having to think was just, I've got to think outside the box with her. She really did not fit into any normal um, that we see typically. And so it was, it was good for me to sort of continue to have to go, okay, I don't have it all figured out with her. Um, again, work with your dermatopathologist. If that's not an open relationship that you have, it's very helpful to have that. Um, and just sort of keep asking those questions. And part of that was to yourself and then also um, to the patient. You know, there was obviously a significant history there that at the time when we were concerned with melanoma, I had not asked her about um, just the rest of her family history of connective tissue disease, which was significant for her. Um, and then don't forget what you know. Okay. This is case number two. It's actually a straightforward case, but kind of in line with what Derek was talking about with um, the zebras, that's exactly what this was. Um, and I had a young patient who came in with an itchy rash on her stomach, and it was a 35-year-old white female, and she'd had a one-month history of this rash on her left abdomen, um, and it was spreading, and somebody had actually given her fluocinonide um, or Lydex to use, and it was not helping. 
So she did have a history of hyperthyroidism. She was controlled with treatment. Um, and on her physical exam on the left side, um, she had linear lichenoid papules that were coalescing into a plaque. Um, and in my original description, I actually described it as appearing to be dermatomal. Um, and you can actually circle that because that ended up not being the case, which was um, kind of the significant really reason why she um, got this diagnosis. So we did go ahead and do a biopsy. I did a four millimeter pinch. Um, and was thinking that it could be lichen planus, could it be some kind of unusual allergic reaction or an unusual herpes zoster. And this is what she looked like. And you can kind of see and looking at her that it obviously, it doesn't, it's, it's not obviously coming flat all the way across. You can kind of see the slant, um, and that was that's significant. So this is what the biopsy came back as, um, a spongiotic lichenoid dermatitis. Um, and basically they gave the description that the histologic findings could be those of a lichenoid drug eruption, which kind of didn't fit with her clinically, but it did not look like linear lichen planus. So at her follow-up visit, I brought in my supervising physician because I was like, this doesn't totally fit. What I'm seeing clinically and then what I got back um, on my pathology is not helping me come to the diagnosis. Um, and when he came in and saw it, um, he felt confident that he knew what it was because he had actually had a similar patient um, with this same diagnosis. And he said that the diagnosis was actually acquired blashcoid dermatitis. Um, and this is very unusual. If you look at case studies that have been presented, um, I think I found probably 10 um, or 12 that have actually been reported. So we put her on a prednisone taper, um, gave her a clobetazole ointment, just kind of took her from a class two to a class one steroid just to see if she would find or see a difference with that. Um, and when we saw her back at one month, she had actually discontinued the oral prednisone, just said it was terrible and she couldn't sleep, so she had decided not to take it after about a week. Um, she had been applying the clobetazole and she felt like there was a lot less inflammation and she did not have any new areas. So again, don't forget about the zebras. Similar to what Greg was saying, you know, this was not a diagnosis that I would have made on my own. This was not an entity that I was familiar with. So it is always helpful, especially if you have a good relationship with your supervising physician, to bring them in, have them take a look. Um, because she was tough. I mean, and that, it is always helpful to have their eye um, helping you, especially when you feel like the clinical plus what you're getting back on pathology kind of isn't jiving or you don't feel like there's an obvious diagnosis to be made. It's always helpful to bring them in, have two more eyes that are looking um, and they can help. So that was a good thing with her. So acquired blashcoid dermatitis is a unilateral relapsing inflammatory linear condition along Blaschko's lines, which is actually different than the dermatomes. It typically is very itchy, um, and these lines of Blaschko were actually first described by Alfred Blaschko in 1901. So they're different than the dermatomes, and as you'll see in the next slide, these lines actually form a V over the spine, an S shape, on the lateral and anterior aspect of the trunk and whorls on the abdomen. So they look different. 
And this is what I found. This is just a picture of those Blaschko's lines. So again, you can kind of see that V over the spine and more of that S shape on the anterior abdomen, which hers really looked more closely to. So Blaschko's lines actually represent a form of mosaicism, which means that there's kind of two or more genetically distinct cell populations that are present, which is why this occurs. Um, and there's actually other entities that can follow Blaschko's lines. Um, IP can do it, epidermal nevi can do it, sebaceous nevi can do it, lichenitidus can also do it, and this is actually the most closely related entity that occurs in children. Um, basically, acquired blastoid dermatitis occurs typically in adults, and then lichenitidus that we see in individuals or in children, sorry, they're actually very much related. They're similar entities. But you can see it with lichen planus, you can see it with lichen striatus, lupus, vitiligo, and psoriasis will actually all do it as well. So this was a different patient um, that I had seen actually a year or two earlier just to kind of give you a different um, visual on what you know, Blaschko's lines can actually look like. And this was a gentleman who had linear hypertrophic lichen planus. And you can see really from that last picture it actually um, involved his entire leg. Um, and again, you can kind of see right there in the middle of his knee that real lichenoid appearance. And then he did have these very, very thick um, areas that were the hypertrophic part of it. And he did very well with just topical clobetazole. Um, and this all got flat, and he was very happy with that. So this really was just to give you another visual on, on what it can actually look like. Okay. My third case um, was a lady that came in saying that she had a rash on her hands and these painful boils under her arms. And this is what her hand looked like when she came in. And you can see there that she really has these atrophic areas. They almost look like atrophy blanche, which you would expect to see um, on the legs related um, really more with vasculitis. Um, she also has just that underlying erythema um, across the palms of her hands, which is actually a little bit unusual. This is what both of her hands look like. You can't tell from this picture, but the other interesting thing about her is that she really had lost the fat pads on the tips of her finger, and her hands really looked sclerodermoid. If we had turned her hand over and taken a picture, she really kind of looked like scleroderma. And this was a 35-year-old African-American female who presented to our office complaining of these blisters on her hands for the last year and painful lesions um, in both of her axillae that had actually just started two weeks ago. And she had had no specific treatment for these two complaints. But when we looked at her past medical history, it was actually extensive. So as you're going through and seeing these diagnoses in this patient that's coming in for the first time, it's definitely overwhelming. Um, she had actually been followed by a rheumatologist for the last couple of years. Um, and in that office had been diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis, which she actually was on the hydroxychloroquine or the Plaquenil for. That was, by her report, stable. Um, and she'd also been diagnosed with dermatomyositis, and she was taking 40 milligrams of prednisone. And so what you saw on her hand um, appeared while on these medications. 
Um, we didn't know it at the time, but when she had presented in 05, um, when she had gotten diagnosed with dermatomyositis, she actually had was having difficulty walking. Um, and again, the labs that we did have, um, her Joe one was within normal limits. Um, her ANA or lupus panel was not known. She had had a barium study that did show abnormal swallowing. Um, and then she actually did have a history of hepatitis B. So she was on the prednisone, she was on the hydroxychloroquine, um, she was on the levothyroxine for, um, for low blood, uh, thyroid. Um, she also took metronidazole, folic acid, and the ferrous sulfate. And then she was allergic to penicillin and codeine. So when she came in to us, in her bilateral axilla, she had multiple indurated plaques, and they basically had this white, chalky deposits kind of within there. Um, and just as I was describing before, her hands really did appear almost sclerodermoid. Um, and she did, and really all of her proximal nail folds, she had positive capillary loops, which again is not totally diagnostic, diagnostic of lupus or dermatomyositis. You can actually see it in both entities. And on her right arm, she had a pretty large erythematous plaque. And that's what this looked like here. It was just on the one side. So we went ahead and we actually did two four millimeter punch biopsies on her, mainly to rule out calcinosis cutis, which is what we were worried about in her axilla. And then again, this new area on her arm to get kind of a better idea of what was going on with her. Because again, she had the diagnosis of dermatomyositis. Um, but what's difficult, as we'll continue to talk about, is she really didn't have any of the major criteria for it. She did have the difficulty walking, but again, it was hard to know if that was truly myositis. Was that more from her rheumatoid arthritis? Um, and those entities can be difficult to kind of distinguish. So we had her continue the prednisone and the hydroxychloroquine, and then we gave her the triamcinolone for the new area on her arm. So these were the two reports that we got back. It did confirm the calcinosis cutis um, in her right axilla. And then her right arm, that new area that we just saw the picture of, it basically showed an interface dermatitis which again is not specific for dermatomyositis. You can sometimes see that, um, or you do see that with dermatomyositis, but you can also see it with systemic lupus. And they saw a superficial perivascular infiltrate of lymphocytes, and there was some mucin that was present in the dermis. And that's actually what both of her axilla looked like, and these were very painful um, for her. So we had her follow-up um, in one week, and we were sort of moving forward with the working diagnosis of severe dermatomyositis, now with calcinosis cutis. And that is a worrisome thing with dermatomyositis. Um, and it's, it's worrisome because it's painful for the patient, um, and it just sort of seems to um, predict doom and kind of where they're headed with their disease. Um, it's very difficult to treat. It's very uncomfortable for the patient. And a lot of times what you have to do is kind of ramp up the treatment they are already undergoing for their disease. 
So again, we explained to her about total sun avoidance. Um, we discussed increasing her prednisone to 80 milligrams a day um, until she could get in to see the rheumatologist, which was hopefully going to happen as soon as possible. Um, we did increase her to the clobetazole. We had her continue the hydroxychloroquine. Um, and then the plan was to discuss with her rheumatologist really ramping up her immunosuppression. So she did um, come back, actually, and she came back earlier, a couple weeks later, and the areas in the axilla were now draining and very painful. Um, and we did do a culture that showed staph and group B um, strep. So we went ahead and started her on doxycycline. Um, we did call her rheumatologist and discuss starting Imuran um, and had her continue the Plaquenil and the prednisone. Um, because the calcinosis cutis had become so painful for her and because there really aren't ways of getting rid of that, the best thing to do is actually to literally cut that out. We did go ahead and do that. Um, did one side and then the other, and she actually did end up with a post-op wound infection, which was again treated with the doxycycline. So this was her face. Um, this is actually what she looked like when she came in. And again, it's hard to tell from this angle but you would not necessarily say that she has a heliotrope rash in this picture. She really, you can see that there's underlying erythema. You can see that it involves her temple, her cheek. It does involve her eyelid. Um, but she doesn't really have that classic, um, what you would describe as a heliotrope rash. So again, when she came back, we began to sort of think again sort of more broadly is this actually truly dermatomyositis does she really have more of a mixed connective tissue disease look which is also very difficult to um, diagnose because it's so broad because the um, criteria involved with mixed connective tissue is is difficult um, or does she have really more of kind of a lupus picture um, Again, because we were wanting to kind of ramp up her immunosuppression, we discussed, again, with the rheumatologist starting the Imuran um, or the IVIG. And as we'll learn a little bit later, she'd actually been on the Imuran before, and she had pancytopenia. So that actually ended up not being an option for her. Um, the actinil and the citricol were started because she'd been on the prednisone for so long. Um, and then we actually did get her records that an endoscopy, her pulmonary evaluation, cardiac evaluation, um, CT chest of the abdomen, pelvis, and her mammogram had been done. And none of those revealed um, a malignancy, which was good. And at this point, her excision sites were healing well. We did get a report. Um, we hadn't seen her for a couple months, and her rheumatologist did send a report to us um, at the end of December that actually showed that things were going well. She just had a mild anemia. Um, her C-reactive protein, which is indicative of dermatomyositis, looked good, 0.3, which was normal. Um, and her CK was 144, which is a little bit elevated, but in her case was good. So this was January of this year, and again, we were kind of going just with the working diagnosis of DM, mixed connective tissue, or SLE. Um, she was definitely severe. Um, she did not have any new calcifications, which was good. And it was discussed to actually go ahead because she was doing so well and taper her prednisone. Um, and part of that, again, she obviously had a complicated course, and she had had a history of aspiration pneumonia. Um, 
And so that was agreed upon by everyone. She did stay on the Black Widow. She was continuing to avoid the sun. And then again, her kind of only option if we were going to need um, further immunosuppression was to actually go to the IVIG, which unfortunately is a very expensive option for patients and really cost prohibitive if the insurance doesn't cover it. Um, but as we look towards the future and if her disease worsened, um, that's really what we began to consider. So what's her diagnosis? And that's really kind of the point um, of presenting this patient is that sometimes it's difficult to know. Um, and I actually ended up doing, I looked at several journal articles and this, um, this one by Sontheimer who he actually did the connective tissue uh, module on the DLI. This was an article that he had written in 2002. Um, and his whole, this whole article was actually about dermatomyositis. Um, and after reading that, um, one diagnosis that she could have is just that classic DM picture as part of an overlap connective tissue disorder, which was one possibility. Or after I looked at the rheumatoid um, clinic, they have actually a similar journal. This was an 05. Um, and again, could she be more of a mixed connective tissue overlapping with DM? And obviously this is where it gets complicated because a lot of these um, diagnoses you will actually end up treating the same way. Um, and again, what's interesting as I kind of read through and looked a little bit more about mixed connective tissue, um, inflammatory arthritis is often a presenting feature of mixed connective tissue disease, which I think we sometimes forget. Um, and then the prevalence of myositis in mixed connective tissue is between 50 and 70%, which is obviously high. And her original symptoms, even when she came in and were diagnosed, could have actually fallen into these categories. And so. That was the point of this patient is that a lot of times, especially with these connective tissue disease patients, it is really important to work with the rheumatologist. Um, these, they also need to be followed closely. Um, and then sometimes, you know, you've got these patients that are really complicated and you really are kind of moving forward with more of a working diagnosis and actually sort of stamping, okay, we know that they have DM and this is how we're going to treat them. And so sometimes, you know, the the nature of their disease will actually come with time. Um, and it is really difficult with these patients just because there is so much overlap with connective tissue. Um, but you can definitely learn a lot from these patients, especially if you follow them closely um, and just sort of see all the different symptoms um, that can happen. So we continue to learn um, from her and she's been um, a great patient to have. Um, so sometimes it's, it is difficult, um, but she's, she's been a great learning experience for us, for sure. And that's all. I'm going to have Greg um, and Christine and Derek come back up, and we've got a few more minutes. Um, so if you guys have any questions uh, for us, if you can go all the way back an hour and a half ago, um, we're happy to answer them. Yes, Sarah. I have a couple questions for Christine regarding HS. I had two patients I tried to get on um, Remicade and one fellow was um, accepted for insurance, but the problem was he had a really large copay, 10%, and he was a very large person and it would require eight vials each time. So that was unaffordable for him, so I'm trying him on Humira. Have you had any success with Humira for HS? 
If you have not tried um, Humira for HS, I will tell you though, um, Cinecor has a great patient assistance program. So if you ever can't get Remicade approved, try that. We and did try it, but because it was off-label, oh, they couldn't yeah. help us That's out. That's the well. hardest thing is trying to do anything off-label. But, um, you know, Remicade and Humira are very similar in their mechanism of action. So if the Humira does work, that would be a great case for you to write up. That's, mm -hmm. that's very There are some good articles on it. Yeah. Okay, and then my second patient was not approved for Remicade for HS. And then I went back and did some more research, and there's just a very little bit of literature on the use of Proscar for um, for HS, and she's not of childbearing potential, so I'm trying that on her for the condition. Have, has anybody had any success with that? Thanks for sharing. That's very interesting. Do you guys, anything like that? No. Very interesting. Thanks. I've also had some uh, improvement with a sprung lactone for hydrodenitis on the appropriate, of course, females, but for the mild cases, it's worked really well. That's interesting. What dose are you using? Do you have to go pretty high? Um, 150 was, a, I have three patients, 150 was the highest dose. The other two were 100 milligrams. Is that and monotherapy? Or are you combining it with like Accutane or something It was like monotherapy. That? They had tried everything in the past and this uh, actually started with by accident with one of our nurses. Uh, she was a new hire and she uh, wanted to be on spironolactone for her adult acne so I put her on that not knowing she had hydrodenitis because she never mentioned it and she said, oh by the way, my hydrodenitis is much, much better on this so my next two patients that presented with mild case, you know, um, I was in plastics before and we just did the big wide excisions, mm -hmm. not even thinking mm -hmm. that, you know, you would ever um, right. treat a patient medically. Guess what? Um, anyway, so uh, it worked, it's worked really well just um, with the, and then we just, you know, monitor the uh, potassiums. Well, thanks for that information. Isn't it great when we find something out by accident? I just love that. Any other questions or anything? Okay, appreciate your attention this morning. Guys, go out, get your lunch, and we'll start again at 1245.